Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Our text this evening is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. And uh, this is the second sermon um, on these verses. And uh, hear God's word. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Eskimos have a unique way of killing wolves, and their method gives us some insight into how sinful lusts can consume us to our own destruction. For to kill a wolf, an Eskimo will simply take a knife blade or a razor blade, dip it in blood, and then allow it to freeze. And then the blade is dipped again in blood. Another layer of blood is added. It's frozen. And uh, after this process is repeated many times, the blade eventually is completely concealed with frozen blood. Next, the hunter will fix this blade into the ground with the blade up. And smelling the blood, a wolf approaches and begins to lick it. As he laps the blood, he eventually gets down to the blade and unknowingly begins to slice his tongue. As his tongue bleeds, he tastes the sudden flow of blood and licks all the more. And his appetite for the blood grows and grows with each slice of the tongue. He does not know that he is being satisfied by his own blood. In the morning, he is found dead, the victim of his own carnivorous appetite. And this is a vivid, perhaps gruesome, we might say, picture, but yet very realistic picture of how we as human beings can be consumed by our own lusts, including sexual lusts. The world foolishly tells us that the way to satisfy your lusts is to feed them. Give in to your body's desires. Do what your body leads you to do. But our sinful desires are in many ways like a fire, And the real way you put out a fire is by throwing water on it. But the devil disagrees. And being the liar that he is, he tells you that the key to putting out the fire of lust is to throw more wood on the fire. And so he would have you to fill your mind with sinful lusts and lusts that will then eventually lead you to engage in sinful practices. And the devil telling you that you will satisfy your sexual desires in the way of sexual immorality is very much like telling that wolf that if he just keeps licking, he will soon be full and satisfied. Last time when I preached on these verses, verses 1 through 8, I preached under the theme sanctification in the realm of sexuality. I introduced three points. The first was what, the second how, and the third why. And uh, last time we covered the what. And the point of that sermon was to establish what it means to be sanctified in the realm of sexuality. What does it mean when Paul says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
It's brought out that sexual immorality is any kind of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage between one man and one woman. So premarital sex or fornication between those who are unmarried is included here in sexual immorality. So is adultery, which is a sexual relationship that disrupts your own or someone else's marriage. Homosexuality, incest, really any satisfaction of the sex desire outside of a legitimate marriage between one man and one woman are all included in this great overarching sin of sexual immorality. And Paul goes on, verses 4 through 6, to explain that avoiding sexual immorality means keeping your sexual desires within the bounds of a committed marriage. And it was explained last week that Paul's exhortation in verse 4, that each of you should know how to control his own body, literally it says that each of you should acquire a vessel, Um, that is an exhortation that in order to avoid sexual immorality, a woman should have her own husband, a man should have his own wife. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Unlike the Gentiles of Paul's day and unlike our culture today, you are called to live a life that is not characterized by the passion of lust. Verse 6, which says that no one should transgress, wrong as brother tells you that you must not go beyond the bounds set up by God in the area of sexuality. To take someone else's wife or to violate a father's virgin daughter is nothing but greed designed to take advantage of another. And so having clearly defined what it means to be sanctified in the realm of sexuality, the next question to be answered is how. In other words, What must we do in order to live as God would have us to live as sanctified people in the realm of sexuality? In other words, now that we know what the standard is, how do we do what it requires? From a certain point of view, we aren't able to do what God requires. One of the debates during the time of the Reformation was um, a debate between Eck, a Roman Catholic scholar, and Luther, one of the Reformers. And part of their debate concerned the question of whether or not sinful man is able to keep God's commandments. And Eck said that if God commands us to do something, then surely we are able to do it. He argued that it would be wrong of God to require something of us that we are not able to do. Luther disagreed. He said that God commands us to do many things that we are not capable of doing on our own. And the reason we're not able to do them is not God's fault, but is the fault of our own sinfulness. Because God created us able to obey his commandments. The only reason we cannot meet his requirements is because through Adam we have chosen the path of sin that has made us unable to do God's will. So it is that in the area of our sexuality, if left to ourselves, if we do not have the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, you can be sure that we would fail to live sanctified lives. At the same time, we have to reckon with the fact that there are unbelievers who seem to live within the bounds of a committed marriage. They live out of their sinful, fallen nature, and yet they see some value in following the Lord's ways. So they're not saved, they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and yet they marry, and for even many years are faithful to their spouse. And uh, these facts seem to contradict what I said just a moment ago, that only the Christian indwelt by God's Spirit can live a sanctified life, and yet there is no contradiction, which I would like to explain further. 
For one thing, many of those who are now faithful in marriage committed sexual immorality in the past and have not repented of it. Yes, they've straightened their lives out for the time being, but why? Uh, often it's because they, uh, it's still considered the respectable and good thing to get married and to raise a family. It's also, I think, part of our nature as human beings to long for a relationship that's built on trust rather than lust. The second reason why the unbeliever is not able to live a sanctified life is related to the first. If you think about the reason why unbelievers get married, you will find that the reasons have nothing to do with God. The reasons are ultimately selfish at heart. The unbeliever lives an externally correct life because he sees that there are personal benefits. But a truly sanctified life is life where you separate yourself from sin out of a love for God, out of a desire to please him. It's a life where you consecrate yourself to him out of thankfulness for his grace in your life. And an unbeliever does not get married for these reasons. Any avoidance of sexual immorality is purely an external form of righteousness. And for many, they they view this external righteousness even as a way to earn eternal life. And third, unbelievers fail to realize that abstaining from sexual immorality is not just about actions, but also about our minds. It's about our hearts. It's about our thoughts. As long as they allow their lusts to run rampant in their minds, they are not fleeing from sexual immorality. They are not abstaining from it. It's usually only a matter of time before they will act on their desires. And you'll hear a very common saying out in the world that it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. According to the world, it's okay to have lustful thoughts for people of the opposite sex, whether it be in pictures or in, in person, just so you don't act on, their, on those urges. And so there's no attempt made to control sexual appetites. And faithfulness in marriage is thus said to be only about how you act externally. It's not a surprise when such marriages flop, and we see it happening all the time. For when you live out of a sinful nature that says yes to sinful lusts, there's likely going to come some moment in your life when someone of the opposite sex is going to give you a green light and what is there going to be to stop you? Now, it's true that by a work of common grace, the Holy Spirit restrains sin in society so that many unbelievers do not always act as wickedly as they could. But it is also true that without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, there is nothing within you There would be nothing within you but a heart that would lean toward wickedness. And if completely left to yourself, you will not abstain from sexual immorality. You will find yourself unable to stand against such temptation, which explains all of the rampant adultery taking place in our society. It also explains why there are so many divorces. Many people want to have some semblance of morality, and so they get married but really they are consumed even in marriage by lust. And when their lusts are no longer being fulfilled by their marriage partner, they look elsewhere for excitement. They either commit adultery, or if they want to maintain an air of respectability, they get divorced and remarried in many cases over and over again. But it is adultery to divorce and remarry for the unbiblical reason of simply being tired of someone and wanting someone new. And so when you think about all of the premarital sex, the adultery, the unbiblical divorces and remarriage, it becomes a near rarity in our society to find someone who has even been externally uh, faithful in this abstaining from sexual immorality. 
So it is that only the Holy Spirit can change your heart and impress upon you the need and the urgency of obeying God in the area of your sexuality. At the same time, sanctification is an ongoing work of God in us that involves means, it involves our cooperation. We're not zapped into obedience, but we are brought to greater obedience as we take heed to God's commandments and his exhortations as they come to us in his word, that come to us, that come to you and to me, pleading with us to action. God's word confronts us with what we need to do and how to do it. If the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, you will respond. You will willingly do those things that will promote obedience and that will help you to grow in your sanctification And so how is it that you and I can become sanctified in the realm of sexuality? Well, in some, you need to take action against this sin. In abstaining from sexual immorality, you must not take a passive, defensive approach, but an offensive approach to eradicate the sin from your life. It's not enough just to say you're committed to abstaining from sexual immorality, but you must take action now while you can to rid yourself of any behavior or influence that even has the smallest potential of leading you in the wrong direction. In other words, do what you can to to not give this sin any chance at all in your life. Get rid of even the smallest beginnings, which begin in the heart in the form of lusts. In other words, you must subdue the lusts of your sin nature. This is the perspective of many scriptures I'd like to bring um, several of them to your attention. Matthew 5, verse 28 says, Jesus said, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. There's excerpts from Galatians 5, verses 13 and following. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. (coughs) Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And a key passage for understanding The process of sanctification is Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, where it says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God 
in true righteousness and holiness. And perhaps you notice there's a threefold process there uh, to, to sanctification that's laid out for us. First, you put off the old man. You must determine that you are not going to live according to sinful lusts. If you are involved in sins of sexual immorality, you must stop. You must throw off that old way of life, which includes no longer going to places or putting yourself in situations where you know you are going to be tempted to give in to sinful desires. For for example, don't go off to an isolated place with your date if you know it's going to incite your lusts toward doing what God forbids. There are many parties, there are many social gatherings that are a source of temptation and best avoided. In Christ, you are called to live a new life which is not governed by passions of lust. So first, you must put off the old man. Second, you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which means that you must do what you can to clean up your mind, which is where sinful lusts originate. You must not expose your mind to things that incite sinful lusts which means you may have to turn off the television or computer or phone or leave the theater. It may mean that your choice of books or magazines may need to change. Begin exposing your mind to wholesome books and magazines, and of course, most of all, expose your mind to God's word. Fill your mind with that which is true and edifying, which means reading God's word regularly so that you're reminded of how he wants you to live and so that you're reminded of his love for you in Christ that compels you to obedience. Memorize scripture, for it's not enough just to to not fill your mind with bad things, but you must fill your mind with good things. And third, you must put on the new man. You must begin to start acting and living as God wants you to live. You must determine that you will go to those places that actually build you up in holiness. You must fellowship and socialize with other believers. For those of you who would like to be married, you must look for a future mate in the church and do not even consider dating someone who is not a Christian. I would go even further than that. Make it your goal to date someone who is going to push you toward greater godliness and holiness. And maybe you don't see anybody locally that is even a potential date. Well, there are Christian dating services on the web. There are conferences for single adults that you could attend with, uh, where people come together from all over. Those of you who are married, putting on the new man means doing what you can to preserve and to strengthen your marriage, continually resolving to live a life of faithfulness, applying biblical principles of love to your relationship. And there are books, there are conferences that can help you to better understand how to apply the scriptures to your marriages. The point is that you need to do anything and everything necessary to stay away from the sin of sexual immorality and do everything you can to take action to live in a godly way, ultimately knowing and applying God's word. So this brings us to the question of why. Why should you live a sanctified life in the realm of sexuality? Why do these things? Why take this seriously? Well, in answering this question, there are a number of different angles that can be taken um, I've heard various answers given by church leaders to this, to this question, and a lot of time they take the approach to point out how if you are obedient to God, your life will go well. Uh, usually something is said about how if you have a physical relationship with only your spouse, you will avoid diseases, 
There's the fact that if you live faithfully with your spouse before and after marriage, you avoid guilt, you avoid feelings of distrust and jealousy. On the other hand, if you have had multiple relationships, you bring something of your previous partners into your current marriage, which cheapens and and weakens your marriage. Uh, These things are true, and indeed there are many good reasons, many reasons, to live faithfully with one partner. As we've already said, though, many in the world understand the practical benefits of living God's way. And of course, there is the opposite side of the coin, that there are negative consequences when you ignore God. Um, In verse 6, we find that Paul is arguing that at least part of what ought to motivate you to do what right is right is to think about the consequences. In verse 6, his perspective is that bad things will happen if you disobey God. For what is the reason why you should not take advantage of and defraud your brother in this matter of, 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 uh, of uh, transgressing and wronging your brother? Because the Lord is an avenger. In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Because the Lord is an avenger. If you decide that you're going to be sexually immoral, expect to reap the judgments of God's displeasure. Expect things like disease. If you later decide to get married, you must still expect difficulty. There will be jealousy. There will be feelings of distrust. Of distrust. If you talk to biblical counselors and you're, you're dealing with marriage difficulties, almost always, almost always, the difficulties are because there, were, there was premarital marital sex going on, uh, there was unfaithfulness prior to marriage, and there will be this jealousy, these feelings of distrust that will disrupt the relationship moving forward. If you commit adultery, expect to have to deal with a spouse who has been betrayed. So expect all of the stresses, expect the turmoil of divorce. The list could go on and on of all of the problems and unhappiness that sexual immorality brings. On the other hand, countless Christians who have done things God's way can testify that it is a great way to live. The Lord's vengeance is not only against the sexually immoral in this life, it's also against them for eternity. Paul writes in Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you say no to God's authority over your life, and insist on living contrary to God's will, you can be certain that you will not inherit the kingdom of God, which means that you will inherit the eternal fires of hell. Now, notice, this is very important. This doesn't mean that if you have been sexually immoral, you are doomed to hell. The Bible teaches that if you turn from your sin, out of a hatred of that sin, if you turn from your sin With faith and love toward Christ, you will be forgiven of your sin. There is hope for all sinners in the cross of Christ. Paul says that those who practice such things, the idea is they're in an ongoing way without repentance. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's hope for sinners in the cross of Christ in the way of repentance and faith. But if you continue to live a sexually immoral life, you can be certain you do not know God and you will know his wrath. So there are practical reasons, positive and negative, for obeying God in this area of your life. Nevertheless, the text before us is clear that the main reason 
why you should abstain from sexual immoralities because God has called you to a life of holiness. What's implied is that you ought to want to do what is pleasing to God. Verse 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. There are a lot of good personal reasons for why God's way is worth following, but the real reason why you should obey God is because you want to please him, because he's Lord of your life. In other words, even if God's ways were a miserable way to live, you should obey him simply because he is God, you are his creatures, and he has told you what he wants you to do. Notice how in this passage, obedience to this command is considered to be necessary. <coughs> Excuse me, it's, it, it's not optional. First notice verse 1 and notice the last part of the verse that reads, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Um, the Greek literally reads, just as you receive from us how it is necessary for you to walk and to please God. Obedience to this and any of God's commands is a necessity. Striving to live a godly life that pleases God is not a voluntary part of being a Christian. It is necessary. This fits with verse 2 where Paul speaks of the instructions that were given to the Thessalonians, literally commandments that come with the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 speaks of the will of God. That is what God wants, what God desires in terms of how you live. And the ultimate reason why this commandment to abstain from sexual immorality is not optional is because it comes from God. According to verse 2, the instructions, these commandments that Paul and his associates gave the Thessalonians were not their commandments, but commandments that came through the Lord Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 make this very same point. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, he, uh, therefore uh, uh, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So this is God's calling on your life. It's, if a mere man were telling you to do this, then you could take it or leave it. But when the Lord of heaven and earth speaks, then all discussion should be over. Obedience is required. Verse 8 concludes the matter in a very powerful way. last part of verse 8 reads this way in the Greek. Who has given his spirit wholly into us. In other words, the word order puts emphasis on the fact that God the spirit is holy. He is the Holy Spirit. And it is this spirit who has not only been given to us, but literally into us, which emphasizes that he indwells us. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us, indwells you, child of God, which means then that you must walk by the spirit. You must follow his guidance. You must live in a way that glorifies the God who is at work inside of you, changing you. And ultimately, you're not going to take action to fight the sin of sexual immorality unless you have a love for God in Christ. When you know Christ in a saving way, when you know him as your savior from sin, when you know that he gave his life on the, there on the cross to pay the debt of your sins, 
when you know that apart from his mercy and grace to die for you, you would be doomed to eternal destruction, when you know his great love for you, you will seek to do what is pleasing to him out of gratitude. It's always Christ's love that compels us to obey him, which is why ultimately the unbeliever is not going to obey Christ. And this desire that Christ would be glorified is what's behind the urgency here of this exhortation to abstain from sexual immorality. This is why Paul asks, why he says we, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus. He's talking about them walking in God's ways and, and seeking to please God. And he says, and that you do so more and more. Notice, this is not perfect obedience that Paul's talking about, but it is growing obedience. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by perfection. Paul's not saying that you've got to get this figured out and, and, and be utterly perfect in all of this in order to be saved. No, but you ought to be abounding. You ought to be doing so more and more. As God's people, as those who love your Lord, as those who understand the debt that you owe to God because of his great gift of salvation, as those who want to please God, as those called to reflect the holiness of the spirit who indwells you, abstain from sexual immorality. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would enable us to take these things seriously as only a truly spirit-dwelt believer would. Father, we thank you that your spirit is a holy spirit, that he works holiness in us, that he consecrates us to you, that he separates us from sin. And Lord, we pray for that work in our lives in the area of our sexuality, that we would not be like the world living according to the passions of lust, but Father, that we would be those who honor marriage, those who honor uh, the, the holy life that you call us to live. And uh, Lord, we pray that the motives for doing this would be out of a love for Christ, out of a desire to be holy people because of what you have done for us. We pray that there be nothing in us of just simply wanting the good benefits of this kind of lifestyle, although we thank you for those blessings. Uh, may it, Lord, not be simply um, a matter of trying to earn salvation, which we know we're not able to do. Uh, we're not ever going to be in this life perfect in these things, but Father, we pray that it would be evident that we love you by our determination and by the victories that we have. Lord, we pray that we would more and more uh, walk in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.